Isaiah chapter 2 verse 3, if you will repeat after me. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. To the house of the God of Jacob. That he may teach us concerning his ways. And that we may walk in his paths. This verse has a powerful literal application. I don't know if you are aware of this. Uh, literally, when the people went to Jerusalem, they went up. When they said, let us come, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, this wasn't just uh, an idea as it is for us. We have a spiritual application. We go up to the mountain of the Lord every time we open the word for study. Every time we bow in prayer, we have an opportunity to go up to the mountain of the Lord and be in the presence of God. But in Israel, in Jerusalem, Jerusalem actually sits on a rock plateau. It's 2,550 feet above sea level. It's one of the highest capital cities in history. So when the people went to Jerusalem, literally they went up. Psalm 48 verse 2 tells us, Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. And so when we say, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, that's exactly what the people did. It's exactly what Cheryl and I get to do this next week, and we cannot wait. We're heading out uh, tomorrow morning early out of Seattle and going to Israel. And I want you to go ahead and mark your calendars for the spring of 2007, because this trip that Cheryl and I are taking is just a precursor to the first trip that we take as a fellowship. So if you're interested in going to Israel, we'll be traveling there spring of 2007. That's our target date, and we'll give you more specifics uh, after a while. I just got to get there myself first. We're barely packed and all that as it is. So uh, spring of 2007. If you need a Bible, Jim's got a stack of them, so raise your hand. You're going to need a Bible this morning. As we flip back over to the book of Numbers for our study, the book of Numbers. Grab those Bibles. And so again, there's a literal application to the going up to the mountain of the Lord, going up to Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, Jews who returned to Jerusalem over the last, well, almost century now, as the Jews are, are heading back to Jerusalem, there's a word for it. The word is Aliyah. It's not just a granddaughter's name, Sharon. The word Aliyah literally means to ascend or ascent, to go up. And as Jews from all around the world are streaming back toward Jerusalem in a time that is very interesting that we live in, they are making Aliyah. There are websites. You can go just type in Aliyah and do a search, and there are all kinds of websites about Aliyah making the ascent back to Israel, back to Jerusalem, to the mountain of the Lord. But again, this morning, we seek the spiritual application. We seek to be elevated in mind, in spirit, in body. We seek to go up to the mountain of the Lord. Let's do that in prayer before we start our study today. Father in heaven, you have all of the power. Lord, you have all of the answers. Lord, you are perfect in every way. As Peter said to Jesus, to whom else could we go? Once, Father, we have tasted and seen how good you are, once we begin to even slightly understand what an awesome and loving and gracious and powerful God you are, it makes no sense for us to run to anybody else. And so, Jesus, this morning, we, we come to your mountain. We come before you. We seek your knowledge and your wisdom. We seek your power. And we seek, Father, to be in your hands this morning and to be blessed as we study your word. And we love you, Lord, and thank you so much for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Numbers chapter 1. Numbers chapter 1. Beginning in verse 2. 
Now the book of Numbers is also Vayadabar, meaning the Lord spoke. There's another name for it as well. I told the Wednesday night crew, I'm not going to tell you because you weren't here Wednesday night, so you missed it. <laughs> no, it's Bimidbar. Bimidbar, it also means in the wilderness. So you can either call the book The Lord Spoke or In the Wilderness. We talked quite a bit about this last week. That God calls us often to the wilderness when He wants to increase or deepen our faith. It could be the wilderness of illness. It could be the wilderness of financial strain. It could be the wilderness of all kinds of relational problems. But often God will call us to those difficult, dry, arid places. And it's in those places that the Lord begins to speak and teach and grow us in the wilderness. Well, verse 2, the Lord is speaking to Moses and he says, Take a census of all the congregation of the sons of Israel, by their families, by their fathers' households, according to the number of names, every male, head by head. From twenty years old and upward, whoever is able to go out to war in Israel, you and Aaron shall number them by their armies. With you, moreover, there shall be a man of each tribe, each one head of his father's household. These are the names of the men who shall stand with you. And then he goes on to name the names. And we began looking at those names last week. We're going to come back to them and finish them this week. But before we do, look down at verse 16. These are they who were called of the congregation. The leaders of their father's tribe. They were the heads of divisions of Israel. Now again, we began last week looking at leadership. And leadership, I believe, is poignantly defined in verse 5. And by the way, you might think as we study this, you might think, well, I'm never going to be an elder or a shepherd. I'm not going to pastor, so I'm not really going to be like a church leader. So this lesson is actually really not for me. It's for someone else here. And I'll just kind of, you know, bide my time until, you know, later on when we get on into the book of Numbers and something else applies to me. That wilderness thing, that was for me. But leadership, not so much. Gang, every single one of us lead, whether we realize it or not. There is someone in every one of our lives that we are leading, that we are influencing, that we are having an impact on, each and every one of us. And so as we talk about something like leadership, you may think, well, that's detached from me. No, it's not. You may lead your children. You may be leading in your family. Wives, there may be some of you who are here whose husbands are at home. You right now, unfortunately, are the spiritual leader. And the only reason I say unfortunately is only because it's a difficult position to be in. But you're leading. You're leading. You keep following the Lord and you keep leading. Every one of us in relationships, teenagers, you have friends. You are leading. You don't know it. But you are. You make decisions. You do things. The way, Josh, you act on the basketball court is leadership to those who are watching. So you see, we're all leaders. And the application of this is incredibly important. I think about the leadership in my home of my kid's grandfather, Bill Morgan, and how he is trying to lead them down paths that I just would prefer he not lead them down. He has more fun with them sitting at the table, but what's funny is as he's throwing out little things, he's always trying to trick them and, and play games with them. They're listening. And every now and then I have to just step in and say, he's kidding, kids. It is a joke, and he just smiles. You know, it's great, I can't wait till I'm a grandpa. No, I can wait. I can wait, but look forward to those days. Anyway, leadership is for all of us. We're all leaders. And so this morning, we're going to look specifically, last week was Leadership 101. This morning is Leadership 102, the called of the congregation. 
the call to the congregation. I'd like you to jot down three things this morning that kind of help us walk through this. Three specific standards, I guess you could call it. Three standards of what God applies to those who are called to lead among the company of Israel. Three standards. Number one is they were called to lead according to their families. According to their families. Verse 2 and verses 4 tell us they were called according to their families. Each one were numbered according to the families they were already involved in. Now, why is that important? Well, first off, it's important organizationally. Organizationally, it just means that the people were organized. God had a master plan in place. They were organized well just by their tribes and their clans and their families within the body of Israel. But it also organizationally points out the land or the the allotment of the land that God's going to give the Israelites when they come into the promised land. Each one would have a specific allotment given to them. Each tribe would have their own. So the organization is fantastic. Those who have wondered, again, we talked about Wednesday night. If you wonder how God could lead three million plus people through a wilderness, and there are people who doubt that number, who question that number, who wonder how in the world it could be done, I'll tell you how, organizationally. For our God is a God of order. He's not a God of confusion. He knows how to lead a company of people, and so he did so according to their families, organizationally, but also, listen, according to their families, covenantially. Covenantially. Now, it's not even really a word, but it speaks of covenant, and you can jot it down for our purposes this morning, because this family's root system goes very deep. The roots trace all the way back 750 years through names like Jacob, who was called Israel, and Isaac, all the way back to Abraham, and here they are at Sinai, children of the promise, some 300 or 3 million strong. And what amazes me is every time I see a reference to the 12 tribes of Israel, I'm reminded of promise, of covenant, in the same way that I see a rainbow. Every time I see a rainbow, I cannot help but think of the words that God spoke to Noah when he said, here's the sign, I'm not going to flood the whole earth again. And the sign continues to appear. Oh, Rick, it's actually a scientific thing. When the light rays hit the water at the same time, it causes those colors to reflect like in the prison. Shut up, it's God's promise. (laughs) I don't need to know all that. It's great to know all that, but the reality is it happens that way scientifically because God covenantially is reminding us He keeps His promises. And the same thing with Israel. Whenever you see the word Israel, the name Israel, the 12 tribes, that company of people, remember... God keeps His promises. And He had His promises given all the way back, beginning with Abraham, going through Jacob and on up to the 12 tribes. Now at Sinai, what an amazing journey, 750 years later. But listen to what God said back to Jacob in Genesis 35, verse 10. He said, Your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. And then He called him Israel. And God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. Now at this point, Jacob had no children. Be fruitful and multiply. Huh? Alright, give that a try. A nation, then he says, and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall go forth from you. And the land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you, and I will give the land to your descendants after you. So God called them according to their families organizationally. He called them according to their families covenantially. The promise that will not and has not, by the way, been broken. But it also matters practically. Practically. Because you see, these men were called in a similar way to the way elders were called or are called in the New Testament. 
They were called according to their families. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4. He must be one, speaking of an elder, a pastor, a shepherd. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he be able to take care of the church of God? That's a good point. The Lord says, I want you to manage home, to love your wife, men, to care for your children, to manage and to infuse faith into them. That's your priority. That's your priority. I have the greatest respect for anyone who would put that in a higher position than their work in the church, as has actually happened. I'm not going to call out any names. I don't want to embarrass Russ, but... Sorry about that, Russ. Some of you may have wondered, if you look at the, at the uh, bulletin, the program, why Russ's name isn't there. Or why Mike's name isn't there. Did they have a falling out with Rick? Are they no longer allowed to serve? No. That's nothing to do with that. They both, for the sake of family, step back. And I honor that. And the Bible honors that. Family first. Family first. You care for those in your own household first. Well, Titus uh, has a letter from Paul. And Paul says there, he even goes further. He says they need to be children who believe. Having children who believe. Literally, the phrase there is children of faith. Children of faith. Children of faith. So, the families, the, the leaders in Israel were called according to their families, number one. Number two... Number two, and I think this is interesting, they were called able to fight. Able to fight. Whoever is able, verse 3, to go out to war in Israel, these are your leaders. The men 20 years old and upward who were able to fight. These tribal leaders were called to be warriors. They were numbered militarily as those who were able to go out to war. Those who were ready to fight. This is the kind of leader God was calling in Israel. And it's important and it applies to the church today. Because the church today is, listen to me, is, don't miss this, a military force. The church is a military force, able to fight. Matthew Henry in his commentary says the following, The church being militant, those only are reputed, the true members of it, that have enlisted themselves as soldiers of Jesus Christ, for our life, our Christian service, is warfare. Is warfare. Is warfare. How much of a warrior are you in the way you live your life for Jesus? How radical are you willing to be? Gang, when we look at different religions in the world and we do comparison, and we use the word radical and we attach it to different religious groups, I ask you to think about this. What would a radical Christian look like? Let me, let me be specific. A radical Christian is not someone who shaves his head and declares that all people of different races are not appropriate or not involved or not allowed to be cared for. A skinhead is not a radical Christian. Hey. <laughs> a skinhead by definition, not by shaved head, Andrew. Come on. Andrew's a radical Christian. Now, see, there's a difference. Andrew has a skinhead. <laughs> but a radical Christian gang is someone who lives to the extreme of what Jesus teaches in the Bible. What does that mean? It means that you are always the first to self-sacrifice. It means that you are always the first to go out on a limb loving someone even if it might hurt you. It means as a radical believer in Jesus Christ that Jesus is everything to you. And as we live that way, interesting, 
That militancy is not a militancy to harm others, but to love them. To care about them. To stand up and be counted, and yes, even to fight for the name of Jesus to be preeminent over all other names. And I know Jesus' name is preeminent. I know His name is already above all names. He doesn't need me to proclaim it. But gang, if I'm a radical believer in Jesus Christ, if I'm a warrior for Jesus, I will proclaim His name to my dying day, the saving name of Jesus, as the only name that saves us. The problem is, a lot of us are more marginal believers. Marginal believers. When we're not completely in the, the radical area where we believe in Jesus and, and church is good and the social thing is good and I, I like showing up it makes me feel good and when I walk out of there I've been uplifted a little bit for the week I like that that's marginal Christianity God's inviting you to a radical Christianity and I wonder how many Christians truly understand the war to which we've been called if you've read this verse I want you to read it again the book of Ephesians chapter 6 Ephesians chapter 6, and I will let Paul describe for you the militancy, the warrior-like attitude of a believer in Christ, what that should look like. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. I appreciate so much hearing you all turn and following and digging and knowing what your Bibles say and not just taking my word for it. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Listen to that again. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, Paul says, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God. Now listen to this. It's interesting what Paul says next after that great declaration of Christian warfare. He says with all prayer and petition. Pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf, he says, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. And he goes on, gang, after giving this battle cry and this designation of the armor of a child of God, and he says, oh, and by the way, here's how that plays out in the most powerful and practical way it can in your lives. Prayer. 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 Are you serious? Prayer? I mean, I like the the armor stuff, but prayer? Gang, the number one battle strategy for a Christian is prayer. Number one. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says to those who he is going to invite or call to be elders, he says, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Oh, Rick, that sounds awfully wimpy. <laughs> Me, big man, you go make the big bucks. 
rebuild things, make name for myself and my family. You little woman, stay home and pray. <laughs> it's a complete misunderstanding of what prayer is about. Gentlemen, guys, listen to me. I'm speaking directly to the men on this. The toughest battle you can possibly wage is spiritual, and it's real. And the greatest power that we have on the battlefield is the power of prayer. But most of us men, most of us, Rick, that's a little harsh, gang, most of us men leave the prayer at home and go out to fight unguarded by the prayer. Well, how can you say that, Rick? Come on. Let me ask you a question. How many men right now are on the prayer team for the Bridge Christian Fellowship? Raise your hand. Not one. And you're going, Rick, come on. You're coming down a little hard. Guys, do we believe in prayer or not? We have a team of women who pray. Whenever there's a need, it comes up. And the prayer goes to either Jackie in Oak Harbor, you can call her there, or Marianne in Anacortes, you can call her there, and the word gets out. And these women are prayer warriors. Where are the men? Where are we? Now, there are some guys who meet in the morning and, and pray with the ladies as well. There's a team of people who pray here every Sunday morning, and that's terrific. But where are the men when the prayer is called for? Paul says, I want men everywhere lifting up holy hands in prayer. Not in discussion about how to build the barn better. Not in, you know, unbelievable. We leave the prayer behind. So I challenge any of you to get on that. Well, I just don't have time. I don't have time to be getting phone calls about people to be praying for. Hey. Paul's the one who said it. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, I want men everywhere lifting up hands in prayer. You know what? If Moses hadn't lifted up his hands, Israel would have lost their first battle. You may remember the story in Exodus chapter 17. Moses is up on the mountain and he's got a couple of guys with him and, and Israel's down there and they're coming up against Amalek. Amalek and the Amalekites. And this battle rages on. And the Lord says, hey man, when your hands are up, the battle's yours. When your hands come down, you lose. And we watch this in that chapter. It's amazing. Up, when the hands are up, they won. When the hands come down, they lose. Exodus 17:11. It came about when Moses held his hand up, Israel prevailed. But when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. And the principle is true today. Gentlemen, when our hands are up, we win the battle. When our hands come down, the enemy prevails. So I think maybe we ought to join our ladies in really believing that prayer is potent. That prayer is powerful. And that prayer is our primary weapon in this battle that is so real and so spiritual. So they were called according to their families and they were called able to fight. And number three, they were called after their first names. After their first names. Verses 5 through 16, you see 12 names listed there. Each one of their names. And you know what strikes me about that? As the Lord is calling, He says, I want Eliezer. I want Nachshon, I want Nethanel, I want Eliab. And as he goes through these names, suddenly I realize he's naming these guys. He knows these guys. He knows them. They're being called out person by person, name by name. Isn't that great? That God names those whom he knows. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, Paul says the Lord knows those who are his. He knows us. While we're scrambling around here on planet Earth trying to be known, we miss the fact that He knows us. That you're here this morning, in fact, every one of us, has showed up today, shown up today, because He called our name to be here. 
Because He knows us. He already has that beautiful, wonderful connection to us. He knows our names. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 2, He who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. The call to the congregation, the call to Israel, were called by name, and so are you. Don't think that you come to the Lord just because you happen one day to think, I need to go to the Lord. You have been called and called by name. So what about those names? I said we'd cover them this week. There's only 12 of them, so we just have 12 more points to go, and we'll be done this morning. Now, we'll move quickly through them. But we saw the first one last week from the tribe of Reuben. From the tribe of Reuben, as we look at these names by which they were called, the first one was Eliezer. Eliezer in verse 5, leader of Reuben, and his name means God is my rock. God is my rock. It's a perfect name for the wishy-washy. For the rock not only characterizes God's steadfastness and His strength, it also speaks of the strength which He brings to us. Psalm 18, verse 31, For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who girds me with strength and makes my way, listen to this, and makes my way blameless. In other words, blamelessness is not a man-made commodity. It is a God-given thing. And when we look in the listing of qualifications, if you want to call them that, for elder in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul makes this statement. He says, an overseer then must be above reproach. An overseer must be blameless. And every single one of the guys who we've asked to be elders here, that's the verse they always bring up. Well, I don't know about this. Okay, I'm a husband of one wife, but the second I get to that blameless comment, I'm out. I'm disqualified. Welcome to the club. We all are, except in this, God makes me blameless. I know that's hard to believe, that I'm actually blameless before... Yes, when the Lord looks at you through the blood of Jesus Christ, He sees a blameless, spotless, innocent person. It's the wonder of the cross. Blamelessness. God is the rock who makes my way blameless. Jude 24 tells us He's able to keep me from stumbling and to make me stand in the presence of His glory blameless with great joy. So the blameless elder, the man who is above reproach, is only that way because of the rock to whom he's anchored. Now, the rest of these names. A couple of them we're going to make some comments about. Two or three we're going to move through real quickly. What are you doing? Do I really? Thanks. As long as it's not me you're attacking. Wow, that's the first time we've ever had stage rushing at the bridge. The point wasn't that good, okay? <laughs> the second name, Shalumiel. Shalumiel, in verse 6, the leader of Simeon, his name, and I love this, and Jim, you need to listen to this, his name means friend of God. <laughs> friend of God. We've got a little conversation going on over there about this. His name means friend of God, and immediately I say, wait a minute, can God be my friend? <laughs> Jim doesn't think so. It's okay. See, we're still brothers in Christ, even if he's wrong. Friend of God. <laughs> Can I walk with God that closely? Like I would a friend. Can I talk with the Lord, the creator of all things, like I would a friend? Well, Abraham, James chapter 2, verse 23, was called a friend of God. 
And Jesus did say in John 15, verse 15, No longer do I call you servants. The servant does not know what his master is doing. I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You want to know what the true mark of friendship is? It's someone who's willing to tell you everything. Has Jesus told us everything? Yes, He has. It's all here. He speaks to us everything, not only by His Word, but also by His Spirit. He wants to let us know. He wants us on the inside, in the know, understanding Him, learning of Him. He confides in us. That's what a friend does. And Shalumiel's name is friend of God. And a leader of the people is one who walks in friendship, close counsel with the Lord. Number three. I gotta say this the right way. It's Nachshon. Nachshon. It's verse seven of the tribe of Judah. This one's interesting. Nachshon's name means two things. One's negative, and the other one's positive. The negative meaning is sorcerer, sorcerer or enchanter. Nachshon. It literally comes from the word serpent. And it was probably referring to an Egyptian servant, uh, Egyptian servant, serpent worship. And the name was given. Remember, they've been 400 years in Egypt, so there's influence of that culture even in their names. Nakshan's name is a derivative of the serpent worship in Egypt. And it means sorcerer. You're thinking, oh great, how does that apply to leadership? Well, there's a positive definition of this name as well. One that foretells. One that foretells. Not as in a sorcerer who foretells by evil, but as in a prophet who hears the word of God, who truly listens to what God is saying. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11, Paul mentions five what I would call leadership gifts. Now there are all kinds of gifts of the Spirit, but these five are lumped together as leadership gifts. How do you know? Well, listen to this. Verse 11, Ephesians chapter 4, it says, He gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. Why are these leadership gifts? Because the next verse, Paul says, For they are for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. These gifts are given to those who can then turn around and use these gifts to equip the body, to grow the saints in Jesus. But I think it's worth noting that there is a thin line between prophet and sorcerer. A very thin line between prophet and enchanter. And you may have been in a church where someone was prophesying, quote unquote, and you felt really uncomfortable and it didn't bear witness in your spirit. You're thinking, something's not right here. Something's not good. And you're discerning their problems with this. So how do you know a prophet from a nut? Or a fraud? Or a sorcerer? Or an enchanter? Great question. Great question. For a mouthpiece from God can also, can also be a snake in the grass. And so we want to know, is this of the Lord? Is it not of the Lord? First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 20 says, Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully and hold fast to that which is good. Paul says, don't despise the prophetic. Prophetic utterances there, the prophetia is literally the, the prophesying. Don't despise that. Don't ignore it. Don't say it doesn't exist because I'm uncomfortable with it. No, you expect it is from the Lord, but you test it. How do we test it, Rick? By the word. Test it against the word of Scripture. If it goes against Scripture, it is not from the Lord, for the Holy Spirit will not contradict Himself. You test everything by the word. You also, by the way, can test it by the results. Let me read this quickly to you. Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 17. God gives a very clear designation for the prophet, for the people, as to how they can know who the prophet is. 
and verse 18. Verse 17, sorry, of Deuteronomy chapter 18. Verse 17 tells us the following. The Lord said to me, they have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen, Moses, like you. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. He's speaking prophetically of Jesus. Verse 19, it says, It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. Now it goes on, he says, verse 21, You may say in your heart, How will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? How are we going to tell the difference, God? And he says the following, When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Someone says, I prophesy, the Lord's speaking through me, that this is going to happen in your life this week, and it doesn't happen, guess what? Not a prophet. Give him a call and say, hey, thanks a lot, Nakshan. <laughs> the next name, moving on quickly. Several uh, names I'm going to run through, about four of these. You can jot down what they mean. Go back and study them as, as they apply to leadership. They're great names. Nathanel or Nathanel, Nathaniel possibly. Uh, verse 8 of Issachar, his name means God gives or has given. God gives or has given. Number five, Eliab. Eliab, in verse 9, of the tribe of Zebulun. His name means, my God is Father. My God is Father. My God is my friend. My God is my Father. Good stuff. Eliab, my God is Father. Elishama, in verse 10. Elishama, in verse 10, of the tribe of Ephraim. If you're jotting these down, I'm trying to go slow enough so you can get them. Of Ephraim, Elishama, his name means, my God listens. My God listens. Some of you need to know that this morning. My God listens. He hears you. He knows what you're speaking. He knows where your heart is. He knows what's traveling around inside your mind. He's listening. Talk to Him. Gamaliel. Number 7, Gamaliel in verse 10 of Manasseh. His name means God is my reward. God is my reward. One of my favorite verses in all Scripture, Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. God says, I'm your reward. More than anything else, when Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming, and my reward is with me, Revelation 22, part of his reward is just him. And the reward we receive in following him is being with him and in his presence. God is my reward. And a leader is not one who seeks reward here on earth, but in heaven he seeks the Lord as his reward. By the way, you may know this, but Gamaliel is a, was a popular name in Jesus' day for rabbis. There was a man by the name of Gamaliel in the Sanhedrin, and he said the following, I love this verse, Acts chapter 5, verse 38. He's speaking and he says of the church, he says, If this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may even be found to be fighting against God. This wise rabbi understood that God is the reward. God is my reward. Gamaliel. The next name is Abaddon or Abidon. 
Uh, Biden. We have a Senator Joe Biden. Who's, um, thing. No, sorry, different name. Uh, Biden. Verse 11. Of the tribe of Benjamin, my father is judge. My father is judge. And a leader recognizes, and this is important, a leader recognizes they do not sit in the place of judgment. That's not what an elder is called to. It's not what anyone who serves in the church is called to. And it's certainly not what you or I are called to in our lives as we lead other people to judge them. Judgment is in the hands of the Lord. My father is judge. The next name is Ahiezer. Verse 12. Ahiezer of the tribe of Dan. His name means my brother is help. My brother is help. I knew when we started the bridge, the Lord made it very clear, you are not to start this bridge and pastor it by yourself. So even when there were 25 people meeting in the living room across the way, Mike and Jeff were elders from the very beginning. Why? Because my brother is help. And Proverbs 24 verse 6 says, For by wise guidance you will wage war, and in abundance of counselors there is victory. An abundance of counselors. Next name is Pagiel. Verse 13 of the tribe of Asher. Pagiel. And his name means, and I like this, Jim, you'll really like this, his name is Event of God. Event of God. There's a phrase Jim uses a lot in our elders' meetings. He says, is this a good thing or is it a God thing? Well, there are a lot of good things that we can be doing, but is this a God thing? Is this a vent of the Lord? Is this something God is bringing about and God is doing? A vent of God, Pagiel. A leader, my friends, wants to see God things, not just good things. A lot of churches out there are doing a lot of good things. A lot of good things in the world. But are they God things? I want to see God things. Exodus chapter 6 verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for under compulsion he will let them go, and under compulsion he will drive them out of his land. God to Moses saying, I'm about to do a God thing. I love the story of Israel because so many of the happenings are God things. The walk through the Red Sea, the travel across the wilderness, the feeding of the manna and the quail. All that God does, they're God things. God events. And no man can claim glory, can claim glory for those things. Number 11, Eliasaph. Sorry, Eliasaph. Verse 14 of the tribe of Gad. His name means God has added. God has added. Let me ask this question. What church do you belong to? What church do you belong to? Amen. Thank you. Not the Bridge Christian Fellowship or First Baptist or Christ the King. That is not the church you belong to. You belong to the body of Christ. The church of God. The church that belongs to Jesus. The Lord has added. Acts chapter 2 verse 47. The Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And the leader knows that God is the mathematician of salvation. He's the one who brings people in and draws them to his body. Let's remember that, that we are all one body in Christ Jesus. And may we, and I pray this often, not be a church that gets competitive with other churches who are also working for the kingdom. It's a big waste of our time. Let's work together with the body of Christ. The last one, and I'm not sure why this is even on the list, Ahira. Ahira, verse 15 of Naphtali. His name means my brother is evil. So among these leaders, one guy's looking around like this, a little paranoid, I guess. You know, Ahira, my brother's evil. There's evil going on here. I pondered this one, and I think it's here for a reason, and a very good reason. For the word that's translated evil here has another meaning, and the word is sorrowful. Sorrowful. 
My brother is sorrowful. And gang, to be a leader among the people of God in the body of Christ, we not only recognize that there is sin and evil in the world, but we recognize the sorrow that it produces. Sometimes as Christians we can get a little concerned with someone who is overtly evil or there's wickedness or there's sin in their life and go, (laughs) you know, that's just an evil person. So are you. So are you. Without the blood of Jesus, every one of us would be counted as evil. Every one of us has sin in our lives. And Paul, writing to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 7, says, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. And the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. The leader can say, my brother is sorrowful. My fellow human being who at this point is lost in sin. Maybe someone in your own family or a close personal friend who you know right now, you can say honestly, my brother is evil. But gang, your brother is also sorrowful. Because without Jesus there is no true joy. People sin. In fact, people sin against me. But a gracious response comes in recognizing the sorrow, the pain, the hurt that is behind the sin and learning to love people the way God has loved us. For Jesus himself was called a man of sorrows. But we're almost done. I have one last thing and I really want you to see. And if you've checked out a couple minutes ago, check back in. Because this is powerful and important to know. These men were counted according to their families. They were counted able to fight. And they were counted after their first names. And when applied to the leadership in any church, there's much to be learned. Much more than we've even covered this morning. But I want to end on this. There's a phrase in this chapter that's repeated four times. A phrase that as we read it in passing, we wouldn't even think twice about it because it just applies to the numbering and how they're supposed to do it. The phrase, repeated four times, has great significance for someone seeking to follow Christ Jesus. The phrase is head by head. Head by head. Verse 2. He says, you shall count them of their father's household according to the number of names, every male, head by head. Verse 18. He says again, count them from 20 years old and upward, head by head. Verse 20 again, he says, according to the number of names, head by head. And finally in verse 22, one more time, according to the number of names, head by head. What's the big deal? Well, when I saw this word in the Hebrew and read its literal meaning, I was stunned as I believe you will be. Head by head. Did you hear, by the way, about the guy who was born and he didn't have a body? No arms, no legs, no body, no neck. Just a head. Just born a little head. You know, wrapped up in a little blanket, given to mom and dad. They took him home and put him up on the mantle. <laughs> they feed him every now and then. He just kind of sat there and... And, and one day he was just he was just hoping and, and praying and Lord if I could if I could just have a body you know just so at least I could be propped up in the recliner you know because it's getting a little boring up here on the mantle and so poof the Lord miraculous gave him a body 
So now they put him in the recliner and he was so happy, you know, just kind of rock back and forth and watch TV and stuff. Well, one afternoon he was praying a little more. He said, Lord, if I just had some arms and I, I, could, I could write, I could feed myself, it'd be easier for my parents. Boom! He had arms. Woo-hoo. So now he's doing all kinds of things. He's running around the house on his hands, you know, and he's just a really happy guy. I've got my arms, my body. This is terrific. And then one afternoon he was praying, Lord, I know nothing's impossible with you. Could, could you give me legs? legs and then I'd be a full person and boom the Lord gave him legs and he was so happy he ran outside and got hit by a car and was killed now the moral of the story is stop while you're ahead (laughs) how long is he going to be in Israel does he have to come back head by head head by head you count the leaders head what does this mean? Why does that matter? Why is it important? The phrase literally translated, listen to this, is of the skull. Of the skull. The word in the Hebrew is Golgaleth. You've heard it pronounced a different name. Golgotha. 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 The place of the skull. The place where Jesus was crucified. And it's so important to understand, gang, to stand up and be counted truly as a leader in the body of Christ is to set yourself, to set yourself in the direction of Golgotha. To go to the hill. To go to the cross. True leadership, gang, true leadership walks in the direction of the cross, heads toward the cross in that downward spiral that is not a pathway of self-glorification. It's not a pathway of, of wonder and awe of, of people looking up to you. Rather, a leader is someone that others should look down to because the leader is submitting even to the point, as Jesus did, of the cross of Golgotha. You go head by head to the skull. That's leadership. That's leadership. To follow Jesus. Peter learned of this. This last verse and we'll finish. Peter learned and understood that to be a leader in the church it was not about following the direction of his flesh but it was going to the cross. In John 21:18, Jesus is speaking to Peter and he says, Truly, truly I say to you when you were younger you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wished. In other words, Peter, as a young man you did whatever you wanted to do. It was all about you. It was about living your life, your way, on your terms. That's, by the way, the American dream. But Jesus says, when you grow old, Peter, you will stretch out your hands. And someone else will dress you and bring you where you do not wish to go. What exactly does that mean? John tells us, verse 19 of John 21, now when he said this, he said it signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God And when he had spoken this, he said to Peter, follow me. Follow me. Peter, you saw me on Golgotha. You saw me pinned up to the cross. You saw me crucified. And Peter, if you want to follow me, if you want to be a leader in my body, in this fellowship, in the church, you're going to end up in the same place. And truly tradition tells us that Peter was crucified, but not exactly like Jesus. He was crucified upside down. Because he said he wasn't worthy to be killed, to be murdered in the same way that his Lord was. True Christian leadership will always end up at the cross.